Welcome to the National Capital Bible Church for our Bible class this evening. We're in Deuteronomy. As a matter of fact, we will be studying the Ten Commandments. We started the Ten Commandments last week, but we will return to those commandments, those mandates, as we see them in Deuteronomy 5. Therefore, it'll be important for us to be aware of what it's teaching us today. This was part of the Mosaic Law, and there are those who might say that they have less importance to us in the church age. But the fact is, is those commandments to Israel are teaching principles for us to apply. And therefore, as we learn about God and his character, we understand how he expects us to conduct our lives. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not into your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. Commit your ways unto the Lord. Trust also in him, and he will bring them to pass. Let's take a few seconds, closing our eyes, bowing our heads, and then I will open us in prayer. Dearly Father, we're thankful that you have exalted your word above your name. And we know that that's not to tell us that your name is not to be glorified. It's simply a way of telling us how important your word is to us. And we're thankful that we have the canon of Scripture, the Old Testament, the New Testament. And we're thankful, Father, that No matter where we go in the Word of God, we learn about you. We learn about principles that should guide our lives and should help us to understand how we honor and glorify you. We're thankful this evening for uh, the wonderful opportunity we have to study Deuteronomy 5, the portion that specifically deals with the Ten Commandments the ten words or matters as we might also understand it. So tonight, Father, help us uh, not only to set aside, confess, acknowledge the sins that might encumber us tonight, but also help us to be focused. Sometimes we have trying days and we can be tired, we can be distracted, Help us to focus on your word and the message that you have for us this evening. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 5. Last week, we concluded Deuteronomy 4, and we started Deuteronomy 5. We studied all the way down to probably about verse 11, but what I'd like to do is return to the Ten Commandments, the first two and three. We saw those. We need to uh, focus on what these ten are trying to tell us. And they are broken mostly into two sets here, Commandments 1 through 5 and then 6 through 10. But all of them are significant and 
God is devoted to us. He gives us these mandates so that we have an understanding of who he is and how we can glorify him. And that's how we should see these commandments. So let me just read beginning in verse 7. Verse 7 says, well, I think I'll start in verse 6. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourselves a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I am the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands of generations to those who love me and keep my commandments. Verse 11, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain and The word here for vain means to treat it lightly. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name lightly or in vain. Verse 12, observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. It is you, in it, you shall know, you shall do no work. You, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your ox, nor your donkey, nor any of your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates, that you, uh, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. Verse 15, and remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God brought you out from there by a mighty hand and by the outstretched arm and by an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. 16, verse 16, honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God has commanded you that your days may be long and that it may be well with you in the land which the Lord your God is giving you. Verse 17, you shall not murder. Verse 18, you shall not commit adultery. Verse 19, you shall not steal. And we could also add the word and to this because these um, beginning... In verse 18, we have a while that tells us, and you shall not commit adultery, and you shall not steal, and you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Notice that we are now ending. We start with God and we end with these verses about the human race and how we should function. And you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Verse 21. And you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. And you shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, 
his male servant, his female servant, his oxen, his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Now, what's interesting, you might say, that's interesting that we have that list. Well, the list has specifics, but the specifics are designed to teach us everything. In other words, he begins with your neighbor's wife, but then he continues. God continues as he teaches this, and Moses records it. He adds these other objects And in doing so, we have really an extended merism. It means everything. You should not be desirous or you should not covet these things. Verse 22, these words the Lord spoke to all your assembly in the mountain from the midst of the fire, the cloud and the thick darkness with a loud voice. And he added no more. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone and gave them to me. You'll notice as we read this, we're not reading these commandments as they are given. We're uh, reading them and studying them as they were given. So this is not to the first generation. This is to the second generation. And this is Moses reminding the first generation and in some cases teaching the the second generation, the commandments, character of God, the requirements of God. And there are those who would say, well, these are pretty strict mandates. We have the same mandates given in the New Testament, in the epistles. Only one of them is not specifically stated, but the principle of the Sabbath is still there. All right, let me begin with the first commandment. You shall not have, you shall not have uh, other gods before me. I changed this first line and forgot to remove the second negative there. No. So you shall, or another word that we could use there is you must, because very often you shall do something is an older English, but you must, you must have no other gods before me. So, When we say no other gods, in the ancient world, most of particularly the Middle Eastern cultures had uh, many gods. Uh, It was as if they uh, had a concern that one god, two gods, three gods was not sufficient. And so they would see an animal. They would see a configuration in nature, and they would worship them. What that tells us is there is an innate desire in mankind to have a God, to seek a divinity, to trust something beyond them. The problem is so many people ignore the true God and like to make up these other gods. So their belief systems included many gods. Uh, They would make them very often. But the Israelites were unique. They served only one God who would not allow any rivals. So as I said last time, the first commandment expresses God's demand for exclusivity. 
he says, I am your God. He also says, I am the only God. I am the unique God, uh, the singular God. And he can say that because there are no other gods. There are human desires to worship other gods, but there is only one God. So it's his exclusivity. He is the only God and adding human deities to one's worship or reverence, some people would like to say, uh, leads, first of all, diminishing the one true God. We diminish who he is. Secondly, we attribute glory to something else, something that is useless, something that's worthless, something that is empty. And then thirdly, we distract the person from the focus or the concentration on God. And so when we have some other object in which we trust, we're stealing that trust from God. The second commandment, we see this in verses 8 through 10. You shall not make carved images for yourselves. Chapter 5, verses 8 through 10. Let me read these again. You shall not make for yourselves a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on earth beneath or that is in the water underneath the earth. And again, this is a grammatical way of simply saying you shall have none, absolutely none. I don't care where you find it. You're not going to have a God anywhere. And you're not going to make a carved image that represents that. So this, again, is an extended merism. It's inclusive. You shall not bow down. You shall not worship to them or serve them, work for them, serve them, uh, revere them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, a zealous God, I think is a better translation. And I've mentioned that he's not jealous He is simply demanding uh, exclusivity. He is the God visiting iniquity, the sins of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. And what we have to understand there is not that the children do not have the opportunity to believe. They don't have their own volition. But too often, Generations follow the lead of the parents and God will visit, as we say, he will take those sins and uh, punish them. And you'll notice it says uh, of those who hate me. This word hate is is the Hebrew word sane. And it's found throughout the Old Testament. If you're reading through Psalms or Proverbs or other books, but really in uh, Psalms, uh, you'll see this word hate. And generally, this word, even though it literally means to hate, it has more of a sense to neglect, to reject, to have, well, the, the word neglect, I think, is probably the best word we have there, because many Many individuals don't simply have a hate for God, but they neglect God. They reject him is another word. 
And by doing so, God describes it as hating me. Here I am with all the provisions that you could possibly need. Protection. And you reject it. You neglect it. And therefore, as far as God is concerned in his word, it's described as hating the God, the God that made them. But in reality, God does not hate them. It's simply the conversion of his righteousness and justice as his relationship to us and to them. Sometimes it can be seen as opposition as well. But it says in verse 10, showing mercy to thousands. And I mentioned last time that thousands here is in contrast to three and four generations. But he shows mercy to thousands of generations to those who love me and keep my commandments. I spent some time with this passage last time. I did address God is not jealous in a human sense. And so I think we understand that. I said that the second commandment is close to the first commandment. And in reality, it reinforces the first commandment because idols destroy the power of the relationship that God desires to have with the individual. It destroys the the sense of closeness that we can have with God and that God wants to have with us. And when we put an idol between us and God, we destroy that relationship. God seeks a close bond with his creatures. He wants us to come to him immediately for help, for safety, for provision, for protection. But idols weaken that bond and often distract the person from the one and only source that truly exists, that truly has a sense of protection, uh, provision, and who loves us. In verse 11, we see the third commandment. Verse 11, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Now, the word here to take in vain It has a a wide range of meanings. It can refer to abuse. It can refer to misuse. It can refer to blasphemy. Uh, It is used periodically for cursing. But it's also used for the manipulation of God's name. We use God's name uh, inappropriately and even blasphemously. No wonder the ancient Israelites developed the practice of not pronouncing the sacred name aloud. Yet God delights in those who love and respect his name. One of the things that the Jews did after understanding this commandment, not taking the Lord's name, uh, not taking the name of the Lord your God in vain, uh, and again, that word has a sense of uh, of worthlessness, of being empty, devaluated, lightly, deceitful. All of those fit within this range of the word vain. But they decided that in order to make sure that they didn't take the name of the Lord in vain or lightly, uh, they would put 
up a sort of what we call a fence. They would expand this thought. And one of the ways that they did this is they say, we won't even take his name. We won't even speak his name. And if we don't speak his name, then we won't take his name in vain. That's, in some people's minds, adding to the word of God. But in some cases, it's simply trying to ensure that they don't even approach that commandment. Most people assign to this commandment the verbal use of God's name with cursing. It certainly can be understood that way. But God's name should never, uh, because God's name should never be associated with curses. And even during the ancient world, a deity's name could be used and abused in this way, in using the name inappropriately. Quite often to lend credit to a vow or a promise or a pledge, God's name would be appended to the pledge. In other words, the person would say, by God's name. I promise this by God's name. Or they would say, with God as my witness. Or they might say, by all that is holy. And then they would take this pledge. They could also say, swearing on the temple or in the heavens, when in fact the statement was false. So they they would use this to add credit, weight to what they were saying. And of course, that was using God's name in vain. Today, we might say that we'd swear on a stack of Bibles. Well, it doesn't make any difference how many Bibles are in the stack, but it's taking God's name, his reverence, the word of God in vain. This was not thought to be a curse, but described as taking God's name lightly, using it in a way that supports a deceitful action. And so we hear that periodically. We would say, you know, I'd I'd swear on a Bible or all that's holy. Well, all they're doing is proving to you that they're probably not telling you the truth. We don't need to do that. As a matter of fact, when we go to the New Testament, the Lord Jesus Christ said, don't swear on anything, nothing, swear on nothing. That's in Matthew, Matthew 5, Matthew 5, beginning, I think it's in verse 40. As a matter of fact, let's go back there. That's a great passage because the Pharisees love to take oaths. That really proved to everybody how sacred they were. So let's go to Matthew 5. In the Beatitudes, we get over to verse 33. The religious crowd, we might say, loved to take oaths because everybody believed that they were sacred. And whatever they said uh, had to be true. So the Lord said to them in verse 33, Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king, nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black. In other words, you have no control. So don't swear over something over which you have no control. Because you cannot make one hair white or black. But let simply let 
your yes be yes and your no, no, for whatever is more than these is from Satan. In other words, it's evil. All right, back to chapter 5, Deuteronomy. Failed to put up number 3 here. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Uh, Commandment 4. We have several verses here. As a matter of fact, verses 12 through 15 state the fourth commandment. Verse 15 says, Observe or keep or guard. This is our Hebrew word shamar. It's one of the ones that is very prominently used throughout the Old Testament. It's closely associated to shema, which means to hear, to listen, to obey. And shamar uh, has a very similar sense of observing, keeping, guarding the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And when we, you may remember we studied the word holy. Today it probably has a little sense of what it really means, but it means to keep it special. Set it apart. So keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. In Exodus 28, the command begins with the word remember. So instead of saying, guard it, keep it, observe it, it was remember. So the idea of remembering it means that we should guard it. We should keep it, remembering all that he's done for us. It says in verse 13, six days you shall labor and do your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your ox, nor your donkey, nor any of your cattle, nor nor your stranger who is within your gates, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. And as I explained, he could have probably gone on, but he names as many as he possibly can, indicating that Everyone rests, verse 15. And remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there by a mighty hand and by an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Keeping the Sabbath day was, therefore, a day for us, them, to remember God and what he's done for them. And you'll notice that they're not to do any work. Now, we knew, we know that there were certain things that needed to be done that probably could be considered work. But the fact is that God wanted them to minimize uh, any activity that would distract them from worshiping him, remembering him, what he's done for them. The commandment to keep the Sabbath holy did not mean that other days of the week and their activities were unholy. That's not the the point here. The Sabbath instructions were to remind Israel that human beings were dependent on God. We are dependent on God. And they could take a day and worship God. He would provide for them through the six other days. Humans have strong tendencies to forget God and his central part of their lives. Instead, they exalt themselves and their accomplishments 
making them the central part of their lives. And I think that's an important point for us to understand. We have a tendency to push God and our our worship of him, our study of him. We push it to one side or the other because we have an important job. We have an important uh, activity. And remembering that is a problem for us. The result is that we turn, we turn ourselves and our activities into God's. In today's terms, we might say that our pursuits become more than a distraction. They become even an addiction. There are some people who are addicted to their work. They don't go to work or if they're not doing something, setting it aside is almost impossible for them to do. They cannot take a day, take an hour, and read their Bible or pray. And it's it's sad because that's where their happiness, their tranquility, their blessings arise. There was a time when Sunday was truly a day for church and worship. Today, since we were too busy with our vocations, Sundays are days for recovering from our exertion from the week and very often recovering from Saturday, our activities on Saturday. So we're, what are we doing? We're traveling. We find that the weekends are times for travels, not for going to church. Now, I understand that if you have a job, that very often if you're going to visit your relatives, or you are traveling somewhere, that generally Sunday, Saturday and Sunday are travel days. Well, unfortunately for us, we spend more time traveling on Sundays than we should. It's not a day for traveling. We spend a lot of time with children's sports and tournaments. There was a time I remember when sports were never played on Sunday. And then it was just the afternoon. Well, that's gone. Now, the best day to have a tournament, softball tournament, soccer, whatever it is, start it early on or start it sometime on Saturday, possibly, and then continue it right straight through Sunday. And that's a problem. We take the, we take Sunday very often for a day to get work done in the house, in the yard, and any other activity that we think is important. And therefore, we neglect God. For Israel, the Sabbath enforced a day of rest and a day of of, of rest and also worship. So in this, the weekly cycle, they were to set this, this day aside to keep the focus on the Lord rather than on their work, rather than on themselves and their accomplishments. Because Israel was in a covenant relationship with God. The day was part of the law. For for believers today, our day of worship is not mandated, but it's an expression of our love and devotion to our God. And we should do our absolute best to keep Sunday, for the most part, a day of rest, a day of worship, a day of praise. Sunday as we call it, the Lord's Day, can help Christians set boundaries on who and what we worship and what or who 
we make the God of our lives. So I'm emphasizing not the Sabbath of Israel, but of a special day for us. We call it the Lord's Day. Well, is it really the Lord's Day? Or maybe we have the Lord's hour or two hours. We should really try to set aside a day. This is the principle. We focus on so many of the things for six days. God says, focus on me for one day. This commandment, the Sabbath, is the only one not restated and established for believers in the church age. Because of this, Christians differ as to how this commandment relates to the believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. For the Jews, the Sabbath was Saturday, the seventh day of the week. Christians generally worship God on Sunday, the first day of the week. Why? Because it was on Sunday that the Lord rose from the dead. Even so, Christians should follow the principle or the application of this command. They should dedicate their time to the Lord by resting, by praising him with his blessings, for his blessings, and by remembering his wondrous uh, his wonderful promises recorded throughout the Bible and his gracious provisions that we receive every day, like manna. You know, his blessings come to us every day. All right, uh, point five. Honor your father and your mother. Verse 13 states the fifth commandment. Honor is the word here. We begin with honor your father and your mother. And it's the Hebrew word kavod or kavav. And the essence of this word means to be heavy. It means to be weighty, which comes to mean to be held in reverence, to respect, uh, to treat with significance. So honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God has commanded you that your days may be long and that it may be well with you in the land which the Lord your God is giving you. I think the first thing we should really understand here is that honoring our fathers and our our fathers and mothers was uh, something that was under almost just understood in the ancient world. And today it's uh, it's lost on us. This is a critical commandment. It says that your that your days may be long. That doesn't mean that we're all going to have length of days if we are honoring our father and mother because God knows the days when we are going to die. But the sense of this, your days may be long and that it may be well with you in the land, meaning that God would bless us. God would bless Israel because of their honor of their fathers and the mothers. So to honor one's parents means to value or to prize them highly. The word is the opposite of the word vain, which we found in verse 11. And we discussed that to some length. Children living at home express this by obeying their parents. And unfortunately, many parents today are trying to be friends with their children and their children just run roughshod over them. And the parents spend most of their time serving their children instead of correcting them and rearing them. Uh, Rearing them is a word that uh, is long past, I think. 
So this commandment was critical for the existence of the nation, that you may live long, that it may be well with you. So parents, especially fathers, rather than the religious leaders, were to pass the covenant values to their children. So the the parents did not depend upon religious leaders to teach the children. It was the parents' responsibility. And that pa- that responsibility has been passed to us in the church age as well. It is the parents' responsibility to teach the children about their spiritual lives. Respect for parents builds strong families. Strong, godly families, in turn, would teach children the way of God. And the covenant community dedicated to serving and worshiping God would remain intact. So the benefits of respecting one's parents would be a blessing, a blessing from God. The clause that your days may be long and that it may be well with you in the land carries the importance of being obedient. God would bless the children who were obedient and the subsequent generations experience the continued blessing that would flow from God. And it's important you'll notice that he's saying the children. He's not talking about adult children, although they should continue to be part of the example that parents set. But the training begins with children. The principle is not only for Israel, but for children today. Children who respect their parents and obey them learn respect for authority and they develop humility. And humility is something that's lost on us and many of our children today. Humility and respect for authority go hand in hand. Respecting authority and developing humility generally helps children to avoid resentment resentment towards others, hypersensitivity, or preoccupation with themselves. And it destroys any hope of happiness and contentment. If you don't have respect for authority, if you don't have humility, you are destroying your happiness and your contentment. Verse 17 is, you shall not murder. You shall not murder. The word here for murder is used for to kill, but here it has a significant meaning of murder. Beginning here in the sixth, the sixth to the ninth commandments, they were designed to build a cohesive society in ancient Israel. So now we're trying to make sure that we have a society that honors God. Uh, each family or each one of these commandments was based on the value that God placed on people, their lives, their relationships, their properties, and their reputation. We'll see that in each one of these. Each of these commandments was reaffirmed in the New Testament, and we could go to passages which would take a little bit of time, but we're not going to do that. So the sixth commandment, you shall not murder, did not forbid all taking of life, for the law itself included provisions for capital punishment uh, as well as warfare. The deliberate murder of another another person outside the legitimate provisions of capital punishment or war flagrantly violated the sanctity of life. This included murder committed by officers of the state. So it wasn't as if leaders could take life. 
it was only done after a, a system of law mandated or found the person guilty. This included the first murder recorded in the Bible was the killing of Abel by Cain. Uh, and then uh, one of the most grievous murders was that of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this was one of the significant commandments. The Hebrew word for murder in this verse can simply be translated kill. But here it should be translated murder, which means to take someone's life illegally. Uh, Since man was created by God and in his image, man should not take another man's life apart from divine permission. God gives life. He's the one that takes life. However, in Genesis 9-6, we did learn that governments were delegated the authority to enforce law with capital punishment. There are, th- there are the- uh, theologians who say that capital punishment was abolished in the New Testament. However, in the New Testament, Paul supported capitalist- capital punishment, even if it could be legally applied to himself. Hold your finger here, and let's turn to Acts. Acts 25. This passage is not often used, Acts 25, to support capital punishment, but it is here. Let me begin verse 10. So Paul said, I stand at Caesar's judgment seat, meaning he said, I demand to go see Caesar. So he said, uh, where I ought to be judged, to the Jews I have done no wrong, as you very well know. Verse 11. For if I am an offender or have committed anything deserving of death, I do not object to dying. But if there is nothing in these things, these charges, of which these men accuse me, no one can deliver me to them. I appeal to Caesar. So Paul says, if I've done something worthy of death, then I should die. So capital punishment was part of Paul's teaching. And it's part of the New Testament. All right. Verse 18. We're moving to 7. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not commit adultery. Adultery was a betrayal, not only of a commitment, but of a relationship. Anyone who treated marriage lightly would also treat his or her relationship with God lightly. Because this commandment was to be obeyed. And if the individuals decided to violate this law, although they probably didn't stop and say, I think I'll just violate this. But by violating it, they also were diminishing God's mandates to them. The marriage relationship should reflect a believer's relationship to God. Therefore, extramarital sex, adultery as we call it here, was forbidden. Though the seventh commitment, uh, seventh commandment does not refer, does not refer explicitly to premarital sex, the Pentateuch prohibited it elsewhere. In other words, we could go to various passages in Exodus and Numbers, Leviticus as well, and here in Deuteronomy that said extramarital sex was prohibited. Paul related the marriage commitment to be based 
on the wife and the husband's relationship to the Lord. We could go to uh, Ephesians 5.22, where the wife is told to love the husband, how? As unto the Lord. Ephesians 5.22. In Ephesians 5.25, the husband's love for his wife was to be done as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. So the marriage commitment, according to Paul, in his epistles was related to our relationship to God, to our Lord. Verse 19, our eighth commandment, you shall not steal. Pretty easy to understand. There are many ways to steal, but the eighth commandment protected the sanctity of property by prohibiting theft. Stealing could take many forms. A legitimate removal of property. Uh, There's another passage that deals with kidnapping. Well, Israel related kidnapping to stealing. Manipulation of a person and his property to one's advantage. And so you could go on about uh, stealing. And stealing, for the most part, was understood as taking someone's property. Many Bible scholars think that this Eighth Commandment against stealing was taught differently than what we might teach it today. But that's not true. It's accurate for us to understand that what is ours is our property, and it should be honored not only by ourselves, but by others. And we should have the same honor for other people's property, whether it's land or whether it's an animal or whether it's a possession of other sorts. And you shall not steal was something that was also applied to the markers for land. Very often, uh, someone would go out at night or a, a, a time when the uh, the other person wasn't there, and they would move the boundaries. And that, of course, was understood as stealing. Nine, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Verse 20, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. This ninth commandment prohibited bearing false witness, or we could say lying. And this was not simply under oath, although we would apply it that way. First, this commandment protected the reputation of people from libel by others. So if we were to bear false witness, we are damaging the reputation of other people. Second, this commandment commandment established the ancient Israelite system of justice on a firm foundation. They would go to this commandment in order to establish a just law or court of law because the truth was to be spoken, not something that was a falsehood. In ancient Israel law, the judging of a person's guilt or innocent was based on the testimony of faithful witnesses. And by the way, it wasn't just one. It would be two or three. False witnesses would undermine the justice system. And unfortunately, today, we have a legal system that is undermined by much false witnesses. False witnessing 
includes any testimony that falsely incriminated someone or negatively affected someone's status, their character, their reputation, and this would include gossip and slander. Though this commandment had its primary application in law courts, it could also be seen to rule out slander and the destruction, the assassination of someone's character. So the sixth through the ninth commandment acknowledge a person's right to life, to home, to property, and the reputation. And now verse 21, we have our tenth commandment. The tenth commandment, verse 21, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife and you shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, his male servant, his female servant, his ox, his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. So there, we have all of the, we, all the Ten Commandments. Covet here means to have a strong desire for something. We'll expand on that uh, here in a moment, but coveting something. Coveting was not merely an appreciation of something from a distance, but an uncontrolled, inordinate, selfish desire. A selfish desire for something that didn't belong to you. This 10th commandment governed an internal matter. In other words, coveting someone's neighbor did not include taking something. That's stealing. This was a internal matter. This was the sin of coveting occurring in the mind. This demonstrated that God intended the Israelites not only to avoid the actions named in the previous commandments, but also to turn away from evil thoughts that led to those actions. In other words, this is an understanding as we arrive at uh, commandment 10, that the other commandments were based upon mental attitudes. And so here we close the commandments with this prohibition of uh, a mental attitude sin. Therefore, this commandment is the only one that specifically prohibited an attitude. Desiring what someone else possessed was self-interestness. This attitude was the opposite of a concern for the other person's welfare. In other words, we're not pleased that someone else has something that we think is valuable or worth wishing we had ourselves, but we recognize that it belongs to them. And we believe that, and and we support their welfare, therefore. The law can be summed up in the last and first commandments. A person must truly love God and truly be concerned for his or her neighbor. Another sense for covenant means to lust, to lust for someone else's property. It was different from the other commandments in that it did not deal with a specific act, but rather with an emotional psychological, or even, we could say, a mental sin. That's how we would approach this. Therefore, the breaking of this commandment could not be prosecuted in a law of court. So we can't take someone to court because they covet something. So this is outside the law courts. I think that was uh, very interesting. Yet, lust for another's purpose often led to the breaking of the sixth through the ninth commandments. 
This was the point Jesus was making in his exposition of commandments 6 and 7. It may have been possible for someone to keep the first nine commandments, but no one would be able to avoid breaking the tenth at some time. In this respect, the tenth commandment is the most forceful of all because it made people aware of their inability to keep God's law perfectly. And this awareness threw them back to depend on God's grace and his mercy. This was one of the important lessons that Jesus was trying to teach the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees and other religious leaders was that you could keep the other laws. You could say that you kept the other laws, but the 10th law you could never keep because the old sin nature led people to covetousness. And then verse 22, verse 22 ends this section. These words the Lord spoke to all your assembly. In the mountain from the midst of the fire, the cloud and the thick darkness, with a loud voice, and he added no more. So we have ten and no more. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone and gave them to me. I think this is important because it says that God provided these uh, mandates, these commandments, and he gave them in such a way uh, with such force that it, they should have been received in that way. It came from fire, from the cloud, and from the thick darkness, and with a loud voice. God was making a point. He was making an impression. And as we read these, uh, we should understand that they should uh, make an impression on us as well. So, uh, as we complete our uh, study of the Ten Commandments, uh, next week we'll return to verse 23, Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 23. So, again, hopefully as we read these Ten Commandments, we don't uh, discard them or disregard them as being applying only to Israel. They apply to us, even keeping a day of rest and praising and worshiping God. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we're thankful for the study of the Word of God this evening in Deuteronomy 5. We're thankful, Father, that you gave Israel these commandments and have passed them along to us so that we will understand who you are, what you can do for us, if we are obedient. So we pray for our obedience and we pray for our understanding of why obedience is important. It's because it opens the path for you to bless us. And we're thankful, Father, for your extraordinary blessing, your abundant blessings to us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.